0: Damn! All right. Well, the boys are back in town. <laughs> hey, Henry, what's going on with Luis? The who? Luis, Luis. He's back. He's here. He was been here the last couple of days. Keep him in prayers though, because they're 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 treating, going to try and treat him without having to do surgery. They think they can. So that's the goal right now. You know, he still has the headaches and they're going to try and stop the bleeding that's going on in there. So, Yeah. And he's been here the last couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you could tell he has a little bit of a, you know, the headache stuff. But yeah, please keep him in prayer. I mean, that, um, yeah. Because uh, he's not out of the woods, but... At least there was a good sign that they didn't have to open up his scar. Right Father, we want to lift up our brother Luis, as you just reminded Daryl, Lord. And Father, we want to obey you. And Lord, we continue to pray for him, Lord, for a complete healing, Lord, as only you can touch him, Lord. And Father, any doctor that sees him and diagnose, gives him diagnosis, Lord, and Father, they would treat him, Lord, with Lord the care that they would treat their own baby, Lord. And that Father, you would be his ultimate physician and bring him that healing. We lift them to you now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for that reminder. Um, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at the Ten Commandments tonight. We're beginning the second part of our studies in the book of Exodus that we began last year. We covered chapters 1 through 19 last year, and tonight we're going to look at uh, begin at chapters 20. You can look at the book of Exodus in three parts. Part one dealt with the control by Egypt. This is where the Israelites were under the burden of slavery that was inflicted on them by the Egyptians. This went up through chapter 12. Part two of Exodus is from chapters 13 to 19 where there is deliverance from Egyptian bondage. And now we're beginning part three, which is chapters 20 through through chapter 40, where the laws are given. And the setting that we are beginning at this evening is that God was speaking to the Israelites as they were gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. Chapter 19 described how God descended on the mountain with, with great power and glory. There was thunder and lightning and fire and smoke and the Israelites were forbidden to get any closer or there would be death. They had come upon the presence of the Lord, God Almighty, who lives in unapproachable holiness. And what they were about to receive on Mount Sinai was not just the law of Moses, but the moral law of God. moral law of God spoken in his power and his glory Moses went up to the mountain and received the law and came down and gave it to the people which we have known we know as the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue the Ten Commandments God's revelation to live out life in accord with God Almighty the Ten Commandments were not given necessarily to save sinners although they can But they were given to those who are already in a covenant relationship with God. The Ten Commandments give us guidance and boundaries for acceptable human behavior. And as we go through this, I'll remind us a couple of times that uh, we, we are under grace. As New Testament Christians, we're not under the law, but there are some basic reasons why God gave the law. One was because God loves His people. He did not give them the the commandments to restrict people. He did not give them to be a killjoy, or, but because He loves His people. A lot of people view the, the law as a negative thing. And I believe... We view many times we view the law as a negative thing is because we break the law. <laughs> Think about it. We drive over the speed limit and we see a police officer, and what do we do? We panic and we hit the brakes. But the speed limit is not to be viewed as a negative thing, but a positive thing. It's posted to help us to get from one place to another safely. And the law of God was given for good reasons because God loves us and He wants to guide us and He wants to safeguard us as we go through life. Second, the law also sets, it sets the meaning for, the love, for our love for God. And again, I know we're not saved by the law, but how, how do we show our love for God? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14. So we show our love for God by doing our best to keep His commandments. It expresses that we love God when we do our best to keep His commandments. And third, God gave us the law to to curb evil. Because we have a bent toward evil. Man has a bent toward evil. If you take a child and you do not teach that child how not to steal... Or, or to not lie, or to control their anger, what that child, if you leave them left to themselves, will become a criminal. I have a grandson now, and uh, I see those little bents. And we do our best to curb them, because we can't leave him alone on his own. He'll end up on America's Most Wanted. <laughs> and all those traits come naturally. Naturally. And they need to be curbed. And God knows this and he gave us the law. He gave us the law as a restraint from the evil tendencies that we have as mankind. Think about it. If we were all good abiding citizens, we would not need the law. There would be no need for stoplights and stop signs. But praise God that he sent his son to fulfill the law. So that we can have His righteousness, Christ's righteousness imputed to us and and find grace when we fall short of His commandments. So, tonight in chapter 20, we're going to look at the Ten Commandments of God, verses 1 through 17, the fear of God, verses 18 to 21, and the worship of God, verses 22 to 26. In verses 1 to 17, the Ten Commandments of God. Uh, The Ten Commandments, they can be divided into two sections. The first four commandments deal with man's relationship with God, to God. The second deal with man's relationship to man. Look at verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Notice he begins by declaring, declaring, I am the Lord, your God. God is the Lord. Here he uses his covenant name, Yahweh. And he is not only the Lord, but also he declares that he is God. He says, I am the Lord, your God. He is our very own God, your God. That is the word Elohim, the supreme God that you are to worship. And, that, and by declaring that he is God, he's stating his authority as the lawgiver. And because God is the Lord, and he is our God, we are called to keep his commandments. At the end of verse 2, he says, uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It was important that the giving of the law began with a reminder of what God had done for the people because it made them more accountable to him. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. In chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, God said, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This shows Israel's accountability to God. And what God had done for Israel was incredible. It was truly incredible. What other God had ever saved an entire people from bondage and led them out of a powerful oppression in such a miraculous way as God did? God redeemed Israel. He brought them unto himself, brought them out of the land of Egypt. And as a result, they belonged to him and they were accountable to him. And this does not change for New Testament Christians. If you have been redeemed, if you have been brought out of bondage, then 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20 tells us, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? We're accountable to God. His Spirit lives inside of us. It's housed there and we are not to tarnish that. We are not to let that be harmed. We are to seek Him and and live for Him. He says, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So if you've been redeemed, if God has done the miracle of salvation in your life, then we're not our own. And His commands and His his instructions are, are not optional. But they're mandatory for us. And the right thing to do is to do our best to obey His commands. The Hebrews lived in a society that worshipped many gods. And God defeated all of them. So Israel was accountable to bear witness to the true and living God in their lives. And to be a, a mighty testimony, a mighty witness to others so that they might put their trust In the supreme God, the one and only God. And we need to be reminded constantly what God has done for us. It's a good thing to do that. And it is to draw us to a deeper obedience to Him. And since He is the Lord and He is our personal God, notice what He goes on to say in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment. God wants us to worship Him exclusively. He does not want us to share worship with anything or anyone else. He is to be number one in our lives. Again, remember the Hebrews had just come out of Egypt where there were many gods. Many gods were being worshipped there. And they are about to go into Canaan where there are a lot of gods that are being worshipped there. And God is basically warning them that as they go to Canaan, that they should don't compromise with other gods along with him. Remember the song of Moses back in uh, Exodus 15, where he said, Who is like you, O God, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And God wants his people to stay true to him. There were the dangers that the Hebrews faced. And God is warning them, You shall have no other gods before me. And these are the dangers that we as New Testament Christians face in our day and age. There are many gods among us in our culture, in our society. I recently saw this video. You know, you're you're seeing a lot of these these uh AIs, these artificial intelligent robots and all this stuff coming upon us. And I mean, they're making them for sex and everything. And, and I re- saw this video and they're talking about where they're building this religion that they're, that they're developing where they're going to worship this AI God. And I just almost fell off my chair. I mean, they're, they're putting that together. A church that is led by a God that's a robot. That's an, an artificial intelligent being. And there are many gods that the people in this day and age worship whether they realize it or not. And we have to be careful that we don't compromise. That we don't get sucked into anything that we shouldn't be getting ourselves into. And a good way to check ourselves A good way to check ourselves is what is the thing that you obsess over in life? What is that thing that that takes up your thinking that that you're most excited about? What occupies your thought life? What does your mind go through throughout the day? And what does it it settle on at the end of the day? Does it settle on God? Or on other things that, that vie for your passion? Is it the Dodgers? Some people get so into these things and there's nothing wrong with them. It's exciting. Is it a grill that you can't stop thinking about? Is it a car? Or does your mind settle on God? Does it commune with God? Does it draw from God throughout the day and at the end of the day? This will give you a good indication of who's your God. And this command is fittingly the first commandment of all the commandments because if we do not have God in the correct position in our heart, all the commandments are not going to be viewed correctly. So this first commandment tells us who to worship. And the second commandment tells us how to worship. Look at verse 4. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. They were not to make a carved image to worship. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that includes anything that could fly. It includes the angels, the stars, the moon, the sun, the planets. And then notice he says, or that that is in the earth beneath. Don't be an earth worshiper. The trees... The mountains, those kind of things. It includes animals, even man. Saying, "Don't put up an image of man." Notice also, he says, "Or that is in the water under the earth." Things like the fish, whales. Don't be a whale, you know, save the whale kind of guy, or crocodiles. I mean, Egypt, they they were into crocodiles, and Satan is clever. If he does not stop you from worshiping the true God, as the first commandment tells us, he will try to attempt to to defile our worship practices. The manner that we worship God is important. And there are some churches that don't have a problem with graven images as part of their way of worship. I grew up in a church with with all kinds of images. Now as a kid, it was scary to walk into that church. These big old statues of Mary and angels, and you know, and most of the time, many, most of the time, Mary was exalted more than Jesus. Made me think of of the portraits of Jesus throughout time. I remember back when I was growing up, seeing the portraits of Jesus that. You know, they kind of, my mom had one in her kitchen, kind of made him look pale and gaunt and sad looking. And then during the 80s, he was made out to look kind of like a hippie, you know, the keep on trucking kind of look. And now, it seems like they make him out to look like a hipster, you know, when you go into Urban Outfitters and you see the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts and stuff like which, you know, it's just terrible. You know, and he kind of looks like a hipster now, you know, and, and it's wrong. And there's nothing wrong with religious art or, or even you know wearing a cross. That's a great witness. But we are not to worship it. We're not to bow down to it. We're not to kiss it. And what we are talking about has to do with worship. An image that is worshipped as an extension of God. God says it's forbidden. God cannot be limited to stone or wood or plastic or even some paint on a canvas. And as hard as man might try, even with good intentions, he cannot properly depict God. It's always going to be inferior to the true and living God. Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is spirit, not a graven image. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God's desire is that every one of us would have a, a a living, personal, intimate relationship with him. He doesn't want us giving our devotion to a false god. He wants us to be close with him. He wants us to be communing with him all the time. And if we're born again, if we have the spirit of God on the inside and the word of God who will guide us in our worship of God, we have the spirit and we have truth. Jesus said in John 14, 16-17, And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. And if we are in communion with God, we do not need to be reminded that He is there. Look at verse 5. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Our God is a jealous God. He's not going to share his glory with any other God. And rightly so, because he is the one and only true God. And all other gods, they're frauds, they're phonies. God declares here in verse 5, he is a jealous God. And jealousy can be displayed in a good sense and in a bad sense. And jealousy in a good sense is a mark of love. My wife displays a good, healthy sense of jealousy because she loves me. She doesn't want me getting in close with other women because I am her husband. That's part of love. That's part of our marriage covenant. She wants my affections to be exclusive to her alone. And God is a jealous God. He wants our affections to be totally His, exclusive to Him. Verse 5 goes on to say, visiting the inequities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, God's not saying that He will punish the children for their parents' sin. Deuteronomy 24:16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. This is not God's nature. God does not function that way. What this part of verse 5 I believe is telling us is that sin leaves a mark on our children by our example and by what we teach them. Because children tend to take after the the environment that they're exposed to. I've seen that like with music. You know, when, when I my boys were little and we would be in a fellowship where there's mellow music, they're mellow there's crazy music on in that environment they get they start jumping off the couches and stuff. And they're they take after the environment that they're exposed to and if a parent teaches their child that it's okay to cheat or to lie or to fornicate, that child will most likely follow that example. And it will be passed down from generation to generation. And this is what happened in my life. This is what happened in my family. Till I gave my life to the Lord. That's what, that was the example that I saw growing up. And now by the grace of God, my boys have been taught the ways of the Lord. And they, by God's grace, are walking with God. And hopefully my grandchildren will see that example and they'll honor God in their lives. And what we need to truly be aware of is our accountability as parents to God. It's a great accountability. And there is judgment of God. There is the judgment of God. If a person lives a lifestyle and rebellion against him, and in essence, it's it's saying that you hate God. Notice the contrast in verse 6. It says, But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Our lifestyle, the pr- priorities we have, the viewpoints we hold will impact our kids, they will impact our grandchildren and even our great-grandchildren. And if we live for Jesus, and if we love him, if we are faithful to him, if we spend time in the word and in fellowship, these qualities will be passed on to future generations. Notice the order at the end of verse 6. He says, who love me and keep my commandments. It is love for the Lord first, and then obedience, which comes from loving him. In verse 7, we have the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This commandment deals with more than just a filthy mouth, although it includes that. But this word, notice the word take. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God. You shall not take. It means to lift. In other words, you shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God in vain. And the word vain there in verse 7 It means emptiness or for empty purposes. For empty purpose. It speaks of not misusing or abusing the name of God. It speaks of the misuse or the profane use of God's holy name. It speaks of expressing the name of God in a common or dishonest manner or or disrespect. And God's name isn't to be used unless it is in connection with praising him. Or declaring his holiness and his goodness. Psalm 8, 1 says, O Lord our God, how excellent is your name in all the earth. This third commandment is defending the honor of God's name. Remember back in Exodus 3 when Moses asked for God's name. God, because of his, his incredible love for his people, he gave it to him. Even as Hosea 11.1 1 declares, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But in Exodus 3, uh, it says that God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. So God gave Moses his name, which speaks of his self-existence. It speaks of his self-sufficiency, sufficiency sufficiency and his supreme sovereignty. So when we use the name of God, we are referring to the essence of his divine being. And the events in Exodus, as they developed... God's name also bore witness to his saving power. The Israelites learned from their deliverance that the God who revealed his name to Moses is the God who also saved them. He's the God who saves. He's the God of creation and redemption. And the whole point of the Exodus was God was saving his people for his glory. Psalm 106.8, speaking of the deliverance at the Red Sea, says, Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. So God brought Israel out of Egypt for the honor of his name. And as a result, his name deserves reverence and respect as God himself. And God is not forbidding us the use of his name, but the misuse of his name. We are not to use it in a vain or empty way. We are not to speak about him carelessly or thoughtlessly or jokingly if his, his name didn't exist at all. When we do this, we dishonor him. It's treating his name as something common, as something secular. It denigrates his holiness. It's sad that God's name is no more than a cuss word or byword by, by people that as they just throw his name around the way, any way they want. Second part of verse 7 says, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Those who break this commandment will be held accountable. The specific punishment, it's not, it's not specified here, but the person is left without guilt. It's, it's worded where less is said, but more is intended. It's like when someone says, I wouldn't do that if I were you. So in verses 8 through 11, we have the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. This fourth commandment, it's the longest of the ten commandments. And the interesting thing is that there are only two commandments that are not in the, in the negative uh, this fourth fourth commandment and the next one after this the fifth commandment honor your father and mother but the rest are basically in the negative you shall not you shall not have other gods but this one's in the positive in the next one also and this fourth commandment also closes the first section the first table dealing with man's relationship to God before we have the next six that deal with man's relationship to man but the Sabbath was a ceremonial law not a moral law The other nine deal with moral principles and they're also continued to be spoken of in the New Testament. We are still not to commit murder. We are still not to commit adultery. And Jesus spoke of those and He got to the core of those. But the Sabbath was the only one that the early Christians were not commanded to keep. The early church worshipped I mean, you have that whole confusion between the Sabbath day and the day that, you know, we meet at church, you know, and they call that the Sabbath day and all that, you know, and there's that whole confusion there or, you know, misunderstanding sometimes. And basically, the early church worshipped on the first day of the week because it was the day Jesus was raised from the dead, the resurrection day. Sunday was the model that we see the church gathering in the New Testament. Sunday is never called the Sabbath in the New Testament. Sabbath as we know is is on Saturday the Christian church day of worship was on the first day of the week Sunday and by the time of Jesus the Sabbath was so tainted with all these crazy rules and regulations that had developed throughout time by the Jewish fathers that they would argue over what you could do and you couldn't do on the sabbath and you know if you wanted to go somewhere they had to put a you know a wire you know and that would constitute that you know you're able you're still part of your house you know and stuff like that. I mean crazy stuff um you know they debated over what was a burden and not a burden can you light a lamp Can you wear your false teeth on the Sabbath day? You know, crazy stuff like that. And they debated so much that it actually was more work to keep the Sabbath. But the whole purpose of the Sabbath was to cease from work. The word Sabbath, Shabbat, means to cease, to rest, to keep it holy. It means to consecrate it. It can be expressed as dedicated to the Lord or belonging to the Lord. So the Sabbath was to be one whole day out of seven to rest, to rest in His grace. It's a day to give our bodies, our minds, our spirit a needed rest with the goal of regaining perspective and being recharged by God so that we can go back out and be productive for Him. Today to be... It's to be a day that's different from all the other days in the week. Set apart in rest. uh, Quietness even. You know, we're, we're so used to the radio and the TV and loudness and cars and, you know, all this noise. It's a time to just be still and know that He is God. Reflect on His goodness. Having a heart of worship as a result of all this. And for me, I personally believe in this model for my life my day off is monday and i try to make that day a day of rest and not doing as doing as little as i can and just kind of reviewing the past week and trying to see you know lord what did what were you trying to show me through this week what what's the themes many times there's themes in my life you know that I see the Lord showing me through the scriptures and stuff, and what she trying to show me for my family, and just having that time to not be busy, busy, busy. And as a result, just reflecting on His goodness and having a heart of worship. My wife, I sit with her, and we go to breakfast, and we try and talk over the week and what's gone on with us, and where are you at, honey, and what are we doing? You know, and just seeking the Lord in that way, and just doing, trying to do as little as possible. Don't answer the phones. And the purpose for the Israelites was a reminder of creation and the covenant. And again, even though we're no no longer under the law, the, the principle continues. We need a day of rest. God made it that way. God says, Remember the Sabbath. Why do we need to remember the Sabbath? Because we tend to forget it so easily. We live self centered lives. Because our work would soon control us, or it takes over us many times. And I know for guys, sometimes our work environment, our little area, when if we're super, we love that because we're under control there. We're in charge. We can do. You know, there's a sense of, you know, that I'm doing something here. And so, so sometimes we get that out of perspective, and we are out of whack, and it's not balanced. And because our families need to come together because it's easy to crowd out God out of our lives if we keep going and going and going. So it's a commandment related to our relationship with God and our worship of God. And this fourth commandment definitely has a lot to say to us today. Now, and just don't take that and say, you know what, I'm not going to do anything anymore. You know, right? That's not what I'm saying. So in verse 12, we have the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. These words are pretty simple. Honor your father and mother. And some of you may think, well, it's not that simple for me. You don't know my father or my mother. It doesn't apply to the type of family I grew up in. That's mostly for the Ozzy and Harriet or leave it to Beaver. But this commandment to honor, it doesn't say that it's based on the way your parents performed. And you may have had lousy parents. You may have grown up with a parent who was absent, or abusive, or unkind, or a drunk. Your parents may have split up when you were very young. Maybe your parents had a drinking problem. And any of those types of situations, they affect your relationship with your parents. But our parents' failure to be all that they, were, they should have been, it doesn't excuse us from obeying what God is saying here. And I know this firsthand. The Lord had to deal with my heart regarding my earthly father. I had a hard time loving him as I was growing up. He left my mom when I was four years old. He was a drunk. He was a very selfish man. And I remember going through junior high and high school and seeing some of my friends getting things that their parents were giving them. I remember some of my friends got, you know, their their first car given to them by their parents. And, you know, I had to buy my $300 Rambler Classic with no reverse on my own, you know. And I had to work for that. And I was, well, you know, kind of embarrassed of it, you know. But that was my car and the Lord, you know, I look back now and I, you know, it was good that I worked for it, but I had a hard time dealing with my dad for all these things. It really bothered me. I resented him. And then I gave my life to the Lord and the Lord dealt with my heart. He dealt with my heart in a heavy way and he showed me, I saw my, my earthly father through his eyes and saw that he was just lost. You know, and he needed salvation, and he needed the love of Christ. And he ended up coming to the Lord right before he died. You know, I saw him, and I don't want to go on long about this, but my father, he left, when I, and I got saved. And then at my wedding, he showed up at my wedding. Is was one of the few times I ever saw him. And that was the first time I ever saw my dad cry. I had never seen him cry until the, my wedding day. And God started doing a work there. And he, he ended up giving his life to the Lord before he he, he died. My sister walked in on him one morning, and he was on the on his knees in his living room crying out to the Lord in Spanish and giving his life to the Lord. And then he died about a week after that. But the passage does not say honor your parents if they were honorable. It doesn't say honor your parents if they deserved it. The passage says honor your father and mother, period. The Hebrew word for honor means to be heavy. It, it, it has the sense of to treat someone with respect because they carry a heavy weight Of authority. To honor means to treat with dignity, respect, and regard. And the scriptures have a lot to say of how we treat our parents. Exodus 21, the next chapter. He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Proverbs 19, 26. He who mistreats his father and chases away his mother is a son who causes shame and brings reproach. God is not kidding when he says, honor your father and your mother. Now, on the other side of the coin, if you're a parent, you are to do your best. I am to do my best to make it easy for our children to obey this commandment. If you want your children to honor you, then you have to be honorable. And what kind of example are you? What do they see and learn from us? Notice the second part of verse 12 says that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. I believe this speaks of the idea of a quality of life where we honor God and we honor parents. We live in submission to God and submission to parents. I believe, you know, you have the, the fall and sin nature and God didn't intend it for us to have all these issues and ugliness in homes and all that. But when we're, we're aligning it right and we're honoring our parents and there's the right relationship, there's a, there's a, it's a healthier way of living. There's a right quality of life. In verse 13, we have the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. The word murder, it means to kill. That's what, how the, the King James Version words it. It refers to unlawful killing doesn't refer to capital punishment, it doesn't refer to killing and warfare, but it speaks of the, of the acts of killing out of hatred or malice. Murder has always been a problem ever since the fall. The first crime was a crime of murder when Cain killed Abel. And blood has been crying out from the ground ever since, Genesis 4: 10 says, right, think about it, our nation is so guilty of the blood of murder. When you put together all the annual statistics on murder and abortion and suicide, the numbers are incredible. And God is so justified in releasing judgment on our nation. But yet He's been merciful as we live right now. But judgment will happen. It's going to happen. The New Testament tells us that murder begins in the heart. Jesus got to the core of murder, the motive of the heart in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five twenty-one to 24. And in those verses, Jesus goes to the root, an, an evil heart attitude. And Jesus is basically saying that if anger fills our heart, if we are prone to vicious speech and, and harboring resentment toward others, if we have hatred and bitterness, then we're guilty of murder. Murder begins inwardly. So God here in verse 13 establishes the sanctity of life. You shall not murder. And then right after that, notice He establishes the sanctity of marriage. In verse 14 we have the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Adultery refers to sexual intercourse between a man and woman when one or both of them are not married. This commandment speaks of the instituted value of marital faithfulness. God established marriage to be one man, one woman, pledged in commitment to live together as husband and wife. This is what marriage is supposed to be. And sex is not something. And sex is something created for marriage. It is good within the context of marriage. It's not a bad thing when it's in the bounds of marriage. It is abused when it's taken outside the bounds of marriage. And if it's done after marriage, it's adultery. If it's done before marriage, it's fornication. If it's done with someone of the same sex, it's homosexuality, it's sodomy. And God established sex with the, and the sex drive and man distorted it, he abused it. And it's now epidemic in our society and in our nation. Adultery wrecks homes, it destroys lives, it ruins children, it ruins reputations. Jesus took this straight to the heart in Matthew 5.28. And he wants us to know that it's, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the mind and of the flesh. He said in Matthew 5.28, But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And our Lord's point is that it's quite possible to commit adultery in the heart without ever physically touching someone. Proverbs six twenty seven to twenty nine says, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes be not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her, shall not be innocent. We have to guard ourselves, you guys, especially with our technological age that we live in. We have got to guard ourselves. We have to adopt the mind of Job. I have made a covenant with my eyes then I should I look upon a young woman. We've got to guard our eyes. We've got to guard our flesh. We've got to guard our minds. Philippians 4, eight it gives us some great advice, some great direction, a great antidote. It says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate, think on these things. Remember that when those temptations come. You know what? I, might, I need to, Lord, help me to, to look at things that are, think about things that are pure, noble, pure, just. Put that in my mind right now, Lord. And if we put the right stuff in, we're going to have the, the right results. And we must also adopt the hard set that Joseph had in Genesis 39. Remember with Potiphar's wife? He said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That should be our ultimate greatest reason for staying pure, for staying clean because it is against our God. And this comes down to our walk with the Lord. How real is God in your life? How real is, our, is He in our life? Do we know He's there? Do we shun Him out or do we, do we know He's there? And God's desire is His people would be victorious in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. 1 Thessalonians 4 for This is the will of God. Your sanctification—that you should abstain from sexual immorality; that you should know how to possess his own, uh, That we should know how to possess His own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In verse fifteen, we have the eighth commandment: "You shall not steal." To thieve. The Hebrew word for steal refers to taking something that belongs to someone else without permission. With the implication that such an act is done secretly or deceptively. In Exodus 22.1, the word is used for stealing an animal that belongs to someone. And in Exodus 21.16, the word is used for kidnapping. It says, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall, be, shall surely be put to death. But here in our verse, it's, it's a broader meaning. That's what's suggested, you shall not steal. And in the Old Testament, people would, they would act, you know, they put up watchtowers for guarding so that someone would not steal their crops or move the stones uh, to make their property line bigger. (laughs) Deuteronomy 19.14 says, You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark. Stealing has been around ever since the fall. And here we are in 2017 and stealing is out of control. You can look at the news every day of the year and you have stories about stealing cars. You see those chases every night. White collar theft, arm robbery, muggings, shoplifting, insurance fraud, income tax evasion, breaking and entering, embezzlement, employee theft, getting rich quick schemes, extortion, blackmail, bribery. All kinds of sinister practices and people are ripping each other off. Why do we lock our doors at night? Why did we buy the club for our car back in the day? Remember those? Why do we have alarms for our cars in our homes? Why is merchandise locked in a glass cabin? Why are there bars on windows and doors? Why do you see postings now with no bills larger than $20? We're letting people know We're trying to let them know and get that in their mind. We don't have a lot of money here. Why do we have a person who checks our bags when we leave Costco? Why do hotels have to bolt down the TV now and the radio and the lamps? It seems like the Eighth Commandment does not exist any longer in this society. Our society has become the land of the freebie and the home of the burglar. But as Christian men, we are to live different. We are to be in the world but not of the world. Ephesians 5.28 Let him who stole steal no longer but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give him who has need. And we may not commit these things that I just mentioned but we must make sure that we are not stealing in other ways. Pay bills on time. Don't be a time thief. Don't call in sick when you know you're not sick. At the job. Don't be consistently arriving to, uh, late for work. Be a good witness. Arriving late for church. The eighth commandment says you shall not steal. In verse 16 we have the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This speaks of giving a false testimony intentionally about somebody. Even though you know it's not true. Exodus 23, one says, You shall not circulate a false report. The word for neighbor there refers to a companion, a friend, a fellow citizen. And bearing a false witness, it can be done in all kinds of ways. It could be done through slander, giving a report or making up a report about someone, hurting their reputation when you do not know all the facts. It can happen by what you... Do not say as well as what you do say. In other words, leaving out important information about a situation or a person that can grossly misrepresent things. Our liberal media has done a great damage when it comes to this. They lie by leaving out pertinent facts as well as exaggerations and just telling bold faced lies. Very untrustworthy been so devalued I, I i believe it's lost altogether and as believers we have to be careful that we do not deceive ourselves into into falling into this type of mentality god is a god of truth and we are under his oath before him he hates falsehood and does not want his people living in falsehood Col- uh, Colossians three nine says, "Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Truth matters to God. That's the idea of this ninth commandment. We are not to be people who lie under oath, or who tell direct lies, who who lie subjectively. In other words, we arrange the facts in such a way that, while we're not directly lying, we we allow others to have to believe that what." what we're saying that that, that it's not true. An example like when Joseph's brothers brought him his body, uh, back his bloody uh, coat, remember? To their father Jacob. Although they had dipped the coat in sheep's blood, they allowed Jacob to come to the false conclusion that Joseph had been, you know, torn away by animals. We're not to be people who use flattery also. Trying to kiss up or butter up with insincere compliments to get in with somebody. To get in with them. There's many ways and they're not pleasing to God. In verse 17 we have the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Nor his male servant. Nor his female servant. Nor his ox. Nor his donkey. Or anything that is your neighbor's. Notice the word covet. It means to crave. To burn. To have a passionate desire for something that belongs to To someone else. It's an inward attitude that many times leads to an attempt to get what is coveted. There's a connection of this 10th commandment into the 7th commandment uh, against adultery. Because adultery is a result of coveting your neighbor's wife. And it's also um, related to the 9th commandment against stealing. Because you covet something with a great motivation to want to steal it. So coveting is a sin that's within the heart. It will produce outward actions if it's not stopped. And we gotta live with the realization that God sees our hearts, He knows our hearts. Paul said in Romans seven, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness and then the unless the law had said, You shall not covet. In verses 18 to 21, we have the fear of God. Look at verse 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Remember back in, I think it was chapter 19, they wanted to get close. And God said, no, they need to get away. Now they're freaking out and they want to get back. (laughs) The awesomeness of the incredible display on Mount Sinai was too much for the people. They were witnessing that God is holy and they were not. Remember, they came from Egypt where there were all the idols and the small gods all around them. And God is showing them that he is the one true, all powerful God. And the Israelites knew that God was giving them a a righteous standard for all of life. and, And they were frightened. They were frightened by the threat of God's judgment. You had fire, smoke, thunder, lightning, the sound of a trumpet. These are all signs that are going to be at the final judgment. Many times Christians long, you know, I want to be close to God. I want to get in close with Him, which is a good thing. But do we truly realize the the awesomeness of God and how we are to reverence Him? Notice what the people say in verse 19. Then they said to Moses, "You speak with us, you speak for us. You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die." They saw God's holiness, they saw their sin, and they needed a mediator. Moses is a type of Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 18:18 18, 18 and 19 says, "I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth." And they and he shall speak to them of all I commanded him. And as New Testament Christians, you guys, we can approach God through Jesus, who is our heavenly mediator. First Timothy two five for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Look at verse twenty. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you. So that you may not sin. Moses is giving them words of reassurance. He explains to them that God's purposes are good. He's not out to to scare them to death. He has a good purpose for them. In fact, Moses gives them two good purposes. And then he gives them an ultimate goal. He says, God has come to test you. It means God has come to prove. He's come to try for genuineness and character. And he also tells them that his fear may be before you. He's not talking about the fear of terror, the fear of dread, but the reverence and awe of God that leads us to obedience. A reverential awe toward God that makes us afraid of not pleasing him. That makes us afraid of offending him because we love him because of who he is. And at the end of verse 20, we get the goal so that you may not sin. The Israelites were to experience a couple of things at the same time. On the one hand, they were to realize that God was an awesome God and they should be judged. And at the same time, God was a good and merciful God and He had redeemed them out of Egypt and He wanted them to live holier lives. He wanted to guide them verse twenty one says so the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where god was and last in verses twenty two to twenty six we have the worship of god god wants to wants he wants their worship to be proper and not long after this they ignored god's commands and they worshiped the golden calf, but they were not without warning look at verses twenty two 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. So once again, the second commandment was repeated and it's reinforced. And I believe God thought it was important to warn the Israelites of the sin of idolatry again. Idolatry again. And last, God instructed the people on the way to worship him. And he instructs them on the process of worshiping him. Look at verse 24. He says, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you, and I will bless you. Verse 25 and 26, And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Verse 26, Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So God wanted to keep His people from worshiping like the pagans. He did not want to show with these high-built altars that were obscene. Even the way they went up. Don't expose your nakedness. Canaanites, they, they practice obscene worship. And he's warning them, don't be like them. When we worship, when we worship God, it is to be in simplicity and purity. God doesn't want his people worshiping the altar. He wants his people worshiping him. So in conclusion, I want to conclude back in verse 22. Look back at verse 22 and it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Even as God spoke back in Exodus, you guys, He still speaks to us today through His Word, through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we may not have been on the mountain there, but we do have God's Word in the Bible, which contains the exact record of, Of what God did at Mount Sinai. Also we have a complete account of everything. Beyond that. That he's done for our salvation. So the Ten Commandments were not just for the Israelites back then. But they are for us right now. They go hand in hand with the New Testament. And they showed us that we truly, truly need a Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord, your incredible, incredible word, Lord. And just, Lord, help us to think through and minister to our minds and our hearts, Lord, that, Father, what you want to show us through all these commandments, Lord, and we do praise you, Lord, that we have your incredible grace in our lives, Lord, that you, we have mercy, Lord, but yet you do want obedience. You want us to not just abuse your grace, Lord. Even as Paul said, should I sin and and, and that grace may abound? Perish the thought. Help us to to truly honor you in that way, Lord, and that we would, even as best as we could in this fallen world and with our humanity, Lord, live to uh, uh, obey you, Lord, in these ways, Father. For you alone have the words of eternal life. We love you. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. All right, so we're off and running in Exodus, you guys.